0: Welcome back to the Creative Strings Podcast. You're listening to episode 24 featuring Rachel Sampson and Neil Fong Gilfillan of Chili Dog Strings. Hello and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. In today's episode of the Creative Strings Podcast, I talk with two very good friends. Uh, um, They're partners. They're partners not only as music educators, but also partners in life. And uh, they're both fine musicians, performers, and amazing teachers, uh, amazing human beings. Also amusing, especially Neil. His work is very amusing. So today we're talking with Neil Fong Gilfillan and Rachel Sampson and together they make chili dog strings. And it's a uh it's a private teaching studio. They're based um near Dallas, Texas. Uh, in a small town called Frisco. I think it's sort of a suburb, northern suburb of, of uh, Dallas, Texas. I met them when they were in Ann Arbor, and they were getting ready to move. They actually uh, joined my music biz mastermind course, and they wanted help with moving and sort of landing on their feet in Frisco, and And I helped them with that to figure out how to you know, get the word out about their studio. Um, part of the reason that I love these guys is the compliments that they bring? You know, they're 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 different people, but they're working on this business together, and they're certainly committed to, to many things in common. And there's and there's also big differences between Rachel and and Neil. Um, so we get into a lot of subjects um, about teaching. We talk about the Suzuki method. Um, we talk about you know bridging contemporary modern approaches to uh, string playing, creative string playing. And bridging that with the traditional Suzuki approach and, you know, and sort of how to manage all these different needs. I had a lot of fun getting the insights from Neil and Rachel about, you know, what motivates great teachers and what makes great teaching. And one of the kinds of things that we can think about as uh, teachers. Um, and I've said this before, but I just have so much respect for full-time teachers because I know that it's a lot of work. And I know that it's a real uh, selfless process. You've you really got to give and give when you teach. And so i um, really honored that uh, Neil and Rachel joined me today. So let's get on with it. <music> Guys, thank you so much for joining me for the Creative Strengths Podcast. And uh, the first question I want to start out with was, given that, you know, I know that you guys are both really high-level performers and musicians. Um, what is it about teaching that, because I think both of you sort of identify yourselves as being primarily teachers yeah you know, and correct me if I'm wrong and what I'm looking part of what I'm looking forward to is I know I'm going to get different perspectives from both of you even though your husband and wife you're obviously very different people so I don't know if you could just share with me what why why you consider yourselves primarily teaching and what and why you do it.
1: sure you want to take this one or should I jump in
2: you can jump in sure. if you
1: like. Um, the short answer is that it's what we really, really like to do. Um, both of us have have backgrounds from college studying uh, studying some music ed. That was like my related field, which is practically a minor. I think yours you were the same thing, right?
2: Yeah, I was just shy of getting a a minor in music ed. Right. Or I guess a double degree, really, is what it was going to be.
1: And and, uh, and all through that process, both of us really loved private teaching. We loved gigging. We loved playing anywhere we could. But um, working at a studio and teaching was always a huge passion. And it just so happens that that's our main gig now. That's most of what we do, and we love it. So the short answer, that's what we love to do. So we do it.
2: Yeah. Got
0: it. And but when you took pedagogy classes in college, Neil, did you have a Suzuki foundation for that, or was it a more standard music education curriculum?
1: Standard music education curriculum. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't introduced to that until after college.
0: And so those things dovetail, or do they conflict at all?
1: Um, you know, I don't see. I don't see any conflicts. Um, I did notice stuff that was just interestingly different. For example, um, I noticed that those Suzuki teachers that I talked to um, were very, very interested in tone, very hugely interested in listening, and uh, the background that I was taught was a little bit more based around um, starting pizzicato, what fingers you're using on the tapes, and then later one day you graduate with the bow. And um, I think that's one thing that really caught my attention, just that uh, everything being centered around listening... And figuring out that sound you're making, that was a huge appeal.
0: These are sort of two different um, communities, though, in a way, right? I mean, a community of public school teachers or school orchestra teachers versus a community of uh, private studio teachers, such as Chili Dog Dog Strings, which is your private studio near Dallas in Frisco, Texas. Um, and, And I guess... The other sort of almost separate community that I wanted to bring into the conversation is this, the community of people that are interested in music outside of the classical string playing tradition. And I know that Neil has been, you know, sort of venturing into this for a few years. And I mean, Neil, uh, Neil's. As far as I'm concerned, Neil, you've got a lot of great things going on as an arranger, as a composer, as an improviser, with all of your production knowledge, and also Rachel is, you know, has been getting into it as well in the last couple of years. Uh, but you guys, I guess it's safe to say, have different takes on it. How do you see that, you know, coming into play in either of those other two realms we, we mentioned, whether it's public school classroom and or the um, private studios? I mean, why? Why or how are you trying to bring that into the private studio? What kind of things are you think are you seeing? What kind of interest are you seeing from students or parents? What kind of pushback are you seeing from other colleagues of your generation of other generations? I'm just curious.
2: I think that it's safe to say that every student that I've seen work with Neil, because he, he does a lot more of that integration than I do currently, but every student that I've seen, that works with Neil absolutely loves it. And, of course, they adore him and his awesome personality and his energy in the lesson, la, 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 all these great things. But a lot of it, I think, has to do with the relevance of what he's teaching. So if we're talking about music, uh, learning music like a language, I think what we need to acknowledge is that there are many different languages within music, right? Um, So I think...
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are on the same page, like not every student who takes lessons and not every student who does school orchestra is going to go on and be a professional musician or like a a concert on stage player. That's just that's just a fact. But being able to cross over and do things makes the music a lot more accessible, makes it makes it something they can really relate to and really feel, really feel when they're exploring the instrument.
2: And I also think that there's a lot of job opportunity outside of what we classically acknowledge, right? So, I don't know, you get all these kids in, in music schools that are all clambering to get those spots in those orchestras that really just, I think, they think more exist than are actually out there. And then, you know, so if they can't get that, okay, then I'll be an educator and I'll go do a public school teaching gig or uh, I will go for my third degree and try and do some higher education, right? Like, that's, I don't know, that's what I saw that runs rampant in music schools. So hmm. realizing that there's actually, uh, from what I can tell from what I was exposed to at the Creative Strings Workshop this summer, there is a lot of opportunity out there that exists outside the classical realm that exists outside of you know classic academia for music and so i think that it's actually really responsible to teach your students how to speak some of these different languages you know have access to them early on and, uh, and the response
1: yeah. the sh- response from parents is pretty solid too yeah. They love seeing what their kids can do when they're playing creatively and doing different things. We haven't seen any kind of pushback at all. It's been very supported.
0: That's great. Well, yeah, just to sort of give an example of what Rachel mentioned. I mean, uh, my friend Stephen Vance in Pittsburgh, he he sends out, I think, up to four or five or even six uh, solo uh, string players on uh, weekends to do weddings and corporate events where their main... um, their main uh, MO is to take tracks and to play along with pop tracks, you know, like current prop, pop tracks. So you basically take like a, a karaoke track from iTunes or like minus the vocals and uh, which you can get on iTunes for 99 cents. You put it in your phone, you plug it into a speaker and you blast that uh, music minus one track. And then if you're a solo cellist or you're a solo violinist, as long as you're plugged in, could be electric violin electric cello or you could have a pickup and then uh, you play those current hits you can just play the melodies you can even buy the the lead sheets or i'm sorry you can buy the the actual scores to these you know with the melodies written out Mm. to a lot of these tunes or you can learn it by ear because they're not that hard and the the money that um, people will pay for this is tremendous and i know that and that's for a soloist to go out with the tracks. And I know that a lot of string quartets and string trios and sort of, you know, your ceremony string trio um or, you know, are now going to this as well. It's it's more commonly requested. Like the Dallas String Quartet near you guys, you know, they they do a lot of gigs where they're playing more popular music. So that's these to the language of music. And and actually I want to play a track uh that you did on youtube or a few of them actually neil i want to make sure everybody checks out the chili dog strings that's chili dog strings that's (laughs) that's that's your dog chili and uh it's the c-h-i-l-i well we're gonna we're gonna play uh some of the tracks from youtube uh during this uh during this podcast one of my favorites is is drop it like gavotte which is based on Lully's Gavotte, and Neil, you put you know sort of a funky beat behind it, or whatever you want to call it, you know some kind of hip hop beat behind it, and it's awesome. It's one of my favorites. And my son Dalton, who was just starting Book Three, he loves it. And you know Cammy, my oldest child, who went through Suzuki as well, Cammy loves it too. We were all singing along and improvising on it and beatboxing to it Um, so I mean this this speaks to what Rachel said about you know teaching kids other languages of music where you take a Suzuki tune but you put it to a beat and now for my next number once
1: again I'd like to return to the classics
0: How do you divide up your you know, your teaching time or practice time for kids when it comes to this? you know? Because I know a lot of teachers think of it as sort of supplemental. The way I do it with both my kids or, or to do it with both my kids was, is to say, like, okay, you've got to practice all of your Suzuki to-dos, your practice spots, listen five times, you know, go through your review material, sort of standard Suzuki things. But then we're going to do our makeup time. And then that's what we do, sort of these fun things. There's a risk of of treating it like it's you know it's just fun or it's just supplemental and, and feeling like you're diminishing it, but uh but at the same time, well it is fun. I mean making music up is fun. How do you do that? Do you do you do it in a similar way or do you are there some kids that's all they want to focus on?
2: Um in my part of the studio, I think definitely there's more of a focus on that in a social context, whether it's in the workshops or in the group classes. Um, you know, this is something I am very new to. It's something I just started getting into. So quite honestly, for me, I have had limited experience implementing it, but it's something I would like to do. Um, so I, I don't know. I'd like to hear what Neil has to right, say about right. that. <laughs> and I mean,
1: and that's that's fine. You caught up fast. You didn't grow up playing in bands and stuff, but you learned how to do it. For um, for my students, it really ends up being, it's not really like a cookie cutter thing. It really depends on the student. I haven't had any student who I had to fight them to not go all in on that creative type of playing. Our students have been, uh, they they pretty much get it that that it's a good thing to have a solid classical base to open up more opportunities, and in a lot of cases, help them in orchestra too, and all that stuff. So, um, for most of our students, who especially the ones playing in orchestra, they still want to do good in orchestra. So it hasn't really taken away from their classical chops at all. Um, and then there are some students, you know, it kind of depends on how we're helping them practice and what that looks like. But there are some students who it really does help to have. Um, I don't know, 30 minutes where they'll work on their, their classical stuff and orchestra stuff, and then maybe an extra 10 or 15 where they get to work on the, those other places. Some do need it timed out and scheduled a little bit. So it really just depends that's, on the student.
0: That's cool. I like that. Well, and I guess one thing that comes to my mind is I, I suppose, Rachel, if you had a student that really... Was showing an interest in improvisation or arranging or contemporary styles, you would say, "Okay, well, we're going to shift you over to Neil's
1: studio, right?" Oh, believe dep- me,
2: I've been tempted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's,
1: but but that's the interesting thing yeah. is we get we get to work together on it. Um, there are times when I'll jump in and I'll help Rachel's kids with that stuff, or uh, even even last week. I, I needed help with a really young cello student. Rachel came in and helped and did, did her focus exercises and all this stuff, and it was great. Mm-hmm. So right. that's part of what we do, work together.
0: Well, you, well yeah, I like, I like the fact that you have different skill sets and different perspectives. And I, I think, as, as I understand it, Rachel is registered with all of the Suzuki books, and maybe, Neil, you've been registered with just with a couple or something like that, right? Yeah, through, through
1: so- three different ones.
0: So I'm guessing that Rachel has a lot of other uh, tools in her bag to bring out um, in certain areas that you don't necessarily have. and you Absolutely. Can go, go to her for those things. And and part of why I'm interested in this conversation is because of, you know, the difference in perspective. I mean, in a sense, Neil, you're kind of like all in, since I've known you for the last couple of years, you've always been sort of all in about like, yeah, I want to do beatboxing and cello and, you know, you know, I want to write songs and improvise and, you know, this is what I want to teach and how can I do it? And, you know, and in a way, I felt like you kind of didn't almost recognize how advanced of a, you know, creative cello player and musician you are because it's not the world that you live in most of the time you're usually teaching in your studio and and i kind of had to say to you a lot of times like neil you're like you're one of the most creative cello players i know out there and and you're like well that's fine but i really you know i really just want to <laughs> teach and uh, which is great and 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 you're sharing a lot of that with your your creative videos and and you know which is awesome passing it on for other teachers And i can't tell people enough who are listening you've got to go to chili dog strings On YouTube and check out uh, Neil's videos, but I might have lost my train of thought there. I apologize. Oh, but yeah. So Neil's really all in. Rachel has been curious and, or sometimes skeptical. I feel like, and and that's 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 why I'm. But that's what I like about this conversation with you two is is seeing this, you know, this these difference in perspectives. So Rachel. Talk about your skepticism. I don't want you to feel like we're ganging up on you and you have oh. to you you have to like comply and be with <laughs> us. I mean we really want to have a positive dialogue because we really want to know like how can we bring, you know, unify our community is really so, what we're talking yeah, bring about.
1: Bring it on.
2: I feel like, you know, I mean, Chris, I've known you since I started with Jenny. And so like you've always sort of been around in my life and I noticed probably when I was in early undergrad that you were putting together those creative strings workshops. And I think I had inquired like quite a few years ago, Hey, I want to come check it out. And, you know, being someone who didn't understand how to not be flaky yet, I guess I just wasn't there yet. So I sort of let that thread go unexplored. Um, You know, it's something that's always grabbed my attention. I think the way it was presented to me in my personal music education was kind of that idea of like, oh, it's on the side. Oh, it's for fun. Oh, it's supplemental. And, you know... And additionally, I thought, oh, it's this big, scary thing called improv and you have to make it up and it is kind of inaccessible. And I don't know, I thought it was terrifying. Um, So it's something that's always intrigued me, but I feel like I haven't always had good access to it. So I, you know, this summer when we came to the Creative Strings Workshop, that was like me going way out of my comfort zone
1: um no hang on a second are you are you saying that 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 improvising is like more nerve-wracking than doing like a uh playing a concerto with an orchestra like on stage i
2: i mean honestly i think yeah i think one situation is much more preferable than the other um yeah so that has been really interesting and you know in the lessons I took with you before uh you know those six lessons that we had I you kept telling me like you've got this you know this stuff like you can do it you've got everything you need to make it happen and I don't know what it is maybe it's just like going back to square one and having zero skills, even though I had some skills, even when I went back to square one, right? Because I have some of this knowledge from before that I retained. But um, I don't know, it's just, it's not even skepticism. It's like, there's some block there for me, there's a barrier, and I'm sure it's me getting in the way of myself. So that's something that you know, it, I think it takes a lot of honesty and it takes a lot of examination. Um, but what I do know from going to the workshop this summer, especially, but even before that, but um, the way that some of these, I think especially young people, the way they can just gather around and take a moment in time, just like they can just grab something out of the air and make a conversation with music that n- no one planned it, you know. They just got together and all of a sudden there's this wicked jam going on. You know, I think of that jam um oh, are you thinking of the one I'm in the courtyard of the one with, with Cami, Yeah. Georgia yep. and Cammy and okay. Carl and like and I think maybe Sarah was out there too and I hope I'm not forgetting anyone, but like it was so cool. You know, the way that they can that full listening loop where they can listen, process Produce and then come back around and that whole time they're all working together to make something totally incredible that's never existed before and will never exist the same way again like that's so powerful mm. you know? yeah
0: no i, pre- I appreciate it. so it sounds like it, it almost kind of took like being there live experiencing it live which is something as suzuki teachers or as you know classical teachers we always stressed to our kids too right recitals live and not right. just listen to the, the tape but it sounds like that that was almost maybe a aha moment for you because you'd obviously been feeling resistant about it as you said for maybe a couple of years and seeing neil get excited about it and working with me on it but then still not being sure but then when you were in that space with people doing it it sounds like that really kind of you kind of got it is that true or
2: i think so i think it made it uh more tangible in a way even though the experience i was having was totally not tangible (laughs) but it just it made it real for me yeah
0: that's cool that's cool and 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 just And for anybody that doesn't know, the Creative Strings Workshop is the annual gathering of Creative string Players in Columbus, Ohio. You can learn about it on my website, christianhouse.com. Just click on education. Um, And we just had our 15th summer. Definitely make sure to check that out. I want to thank Electric Violin Shop for supporting the Creative Strings Podcast. They've supported us ever since day one. They're a great group of folks. Uh, Electric Violin Shop is a cooperative employee-owned company. It's as mom and pop as it gets, as far as I'm concerned. They're in North Carolina, but they serve a worldwide clientele of people who are looking for uh, support in getting their best sound, getting uh, their best amplified sound. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that, and we've covered that in some of the episodes Uh, of the creative strings podcast but my favorite thing about working with them is their phone support and i'm so confident telling you that you're not going to get better uh, more knowledgeable phone support about any questions you have related to amplified strings so give them a call at 866-900-8400 again that's 866-900-8400 or go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings if you let them know that you heard about them from me and you do end up purchasing something with electro violin shop you will get a discount just for letting them know that we sent you creative strings academy is a home study course providing easy online training to help string players become more creative musicians with over 200 Plus video lessons and course materials, you'll also gain access to personalized feedback from me, Christian House. And right now, in fact, you can even get a free private Skype lesson with me. That's right. I'll simply send you a link to my calendar and you can schedule a time and I'll sit down with you, give you 30 minutes of my undivided attention to talk about anything you want and have a proper lesson and give you feedback on your playing, give you some guidance about what to work on, how to craft your practice regimen. And this is easy for you to get. All you have to do is sign up for a free 30-day trial. You can do that at christianhouse.com. Simply look for Creative Strings Academy at the top nav bar. Not only are you like young teachers, but you're young and established teachers. Like you have a lot of history. Actually, you've been working for several years with studios, different places, um, you're creating content, you're doing workshops, you're really engaged, you're really serious, serious teachers, but you're very young. And so I'm curious if you notice like difference between you know older generations of teachers in terms of how they take to these ideas and or to your own peer group, people your own age. I don't I don't imagine you know that many people who are as young as you and are as established as teachers, but I'm just curious.
1: That's that's a very interesting question because the I I can tell you I don't know what everybody everybody out there is thinking, but I can tell you what we've seen. We've had um we've had a lot of positive support from some older Suzuki teachers, especially on Facebook. We don't have a whole lot of older Suzuki teachers following us on Instagram, but on Facebook, there are some that we keep up with and we get a good, really good response from those. Um, what do you think? What do you think about the generational difference? Because there's always been, I, and, I, and I know I, I don't want to throw all this kind of playing under a label, but when it comes to uh, supplemental music in the In the Suzuki world There have been several works Outside of those main Suzuki books That have been embraced with open arms So surprisingly The response has been pretty good Even across generations What do you think though?
2: Yeah, you know, I think Suzuki world is kind of a funny thing Um, And I think that Just to be aware of Not being ageist I really think it has there are people, you know, in older generations who are stuck in their mindset. But I've met some super old 26-year-olds, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I think it's just a mindset thing. Um, there are things that I can probably be old and cranky about if we sit and think about it really hard. No. So, <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, so I think it's more of a mindset issue than it is a generational thing. Um. Yeah, I don't know, because, like, some of the best support we've gotten is from people in those older generations, you know. We have a lot of people, uh, our peers, who who I think are very supportive, are very curious, definitely enthusiastic. Um, there are definitely more of us, I think, in our age group than in the older generations. But um, I really have run into very few people who have been – actually resistant to the idea. Uh, I Honestly, like I said before, I think the biggest thing is that a lot of people, they just want to see it taught well. You know, like if you're going to do it, they want to see it really come to fruition in a way that their kids can actually use it, take it with them for their lifetime, not just like have one little workshop and then, you know, like it's kind of a blip. So... Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, or it, if it makes it for a juicy it, conversation. Yeah, it may it may depend
1: on the it may depend on the person more than the generational I think gap. so.
2: You know, but it's that it's that Suzuki idea of like Suzuki imparted all of this wisdom on us, and then when we take that method and that philosophy, it then becomes that individual plus what Suzuki taught. So everyone is different. Every individual teaches their own style a little bit.
1: Yeah. 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 That's that's a yeah, good point.
2: Suzuki go fill in. Right. Suzuki Samson. Right, right. kind of thing. Because
1: that's what it's all about. Yeah. Your own method under it.
0: And, well, that, that brings me back. So it sounds like you're saying, yeah, people um, of any generation could be for or against um, being more creative in how you uh, apply the Suzuki method to... Um, to teaching young musicians and whether or not you're going outside of the books, whether or not you're introducing new concepts and that I guess gets me back to, well, I guess, why do you teach, right? Because it, you're saying, well, the people, they just care about good teaching. So what is good teaching and, and why do you teach?
2: Well, I teach, I teach for people that's my biggest thing it's really about the personal connection there is nothing like working with a four-year-old for an entire year and teaching them how to problem solve and showing them all the possibilities that are available to them um you know and I think that sort of Facilitating a way for parents and children to create a stronger bond through a specific activity, like learning how to play the violin, is really magical. (laughs) You know, that's something in my relationship with my mom that no one can take away. You know, like that's a very special bond that I have with her. Um, And there were a lot of ups and downs, but it was all very meaningful and really important to the way that my life has gone and what I see as important, you know?
0: And this, this, you're kind of referencing the, the triangle, right? The famous Suzuki triangle yeah. parent, teacher, student. I've heard people say, uh, and disclaimer, I mean, I'm a Suzuki kid and Suzuki dad twice over. I'm not <laughs> registered as a Suzuki teacher. So, um, but obviously I have an opinion. Um, But I've heard people say that, you know, they thought this was a horrible idea, having the parents sit in on the lessons. Um, What do you say to that? (laughs) I
2: say Suzuki lessons are not for everybody. That's what I say. (laughs) They're not for everybody. Not everyone has to consume the Suzuki lesson, you know. But there are a lot of people where it works beautifully for them.
1: And, And it depends. Like, I have some older students who their parents don't sit in on their lessons but for little kids the idea is that the parents are helping them practice throughout the week and we don't want to leave them in the dark we want parents to know what's expected and what they should be practicing so especially for the tiny kids it helps a ton
0: yeah well i know my experience having seen you know having had that you know my mom being involved as as the as the uh the teaching parent i guess um I know what you're saying, Rachel, like I experienced that and also, um, you know, both of my kids, their moms, you know, they're, I mean, I I witnessed that relationship and I know personally as a dad that my relationship with my kids, uh, there's so much foundation there from the time that we spent playing music together. So I I can testify to that.
1: That's Um, beautiful. I didn't have that as a kid. I was just practicing in my room by myself trying to see how fast I could play can-can. Like I <laughs> didn't you grow up with this stuff. This is beautiful. What?
0: So, so Neil, what? What do you? What do you teach?
1: It's. It's my favorite gig. That's that's the real honest answer. It's my favorite gig. I love helping kids figure out how to overcome obstacles that they have on their instrument, how to figure themselves out a little bit, not like I have all the answers or anything, but I love seeing, I love seeing students, everything from being able to take ownership of what they're doing, to be able to express themselves, or to take pride in something that they worked on or wrote, and be able to feel really good about working hard on that. I like it because playing playing music is something where even at a young age, kids can figure that out and see the see that their hard work paid off on it.
0: Mm. Those a great, great answers. Thank you, guys. So what makes a good teacher?
1: <sighs>
0: what makes th- teaching
1: good? I think a lot of it is empathy, understanding where... A student is
2: yeah at any age meeting them where they're at
1: um yeah yeah. and and just trying to trying to figure out what's going on Um, if if things aren't going as planned why isn't it going as as planned it might not always be that the kid just simply doesn't get it or it might not even be um, I mean it's it's important to consider how how ready is how ready a kid is to learn like their mindset, because um, the same formulas might not work for every kid, you know. So I think just try, trying to meet them where they're at and work with what you've got.
0: What, what does that mean, meet them where they're at? Can you give me an example? Because I've heard that before. Sure, but.
1: sure. Uh, for example, I, I think about this right now. I, got a, I have a student who um, it would be, let's see. I have, and everybody will be able to relate to this. I have a student who doesn't practice enough. Like that's the, that's the general phrase. He could probably practice more. I'm sure of this, but, um, what I'm, what I'm working on now talking to him and talking to his mom is figuring out what's going on because it seems that when he does practice for a 30 or 45 minutes solid, it seems that he does get really distracted. It seems that he does have issues focusing and, um, I think I think what I think what helps make make a good teacher or help meet them where they're at is trying to figure out with the kid why why they're getting off track, why they're getting distracted. If if practicing if sitting down and practicing for 45 minutes isn't working right now, you can crack the whip or, you know, get mad at them and the lesson for that and try to guilt them into practicing more. But I think it's better when you can instead try to set attainable goals for them try to see what is going to set up a strong foundation so that they can start doing better.
0: So you so you're teaching someone to to come up with their own solutions so that they can be their own teacher later is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, t- giving them tools so that they can guide themselves. I mean that's that's what we want. We want them to To know how to practice, they want them to know how to analyze what's going on with their intonation or with their bow strokes or with their phrasing or... Why is it that my practicing isn't that productive right now? You know, just like getting to the root of all of this stuff. And, you know, first we help facilitate the removal of barriers and eventually we teach them how to do it themselves. And that's why I think it's so cool is like, I mean, really, he teaches cello, I teach viola and violin, but really has nothing to do with that. It has to do with learning how to live your life, right? That's the magic of Suzuki Method, because I think he really expressed that so beautifully when he talks about creating noble human beings and, and creating children with beautiful hearts. Like, it's, it's people who, like, really seek to give purpose to their lives. They're always looking forward. How can we do better, you know? So, I don't know.
0: Is, yeah, I'm curious if you could say more about that because I've heard that expressed eloquently before. You say that you're not teaching, you know, I've heard it said. Many times Suzuki said we're not teaching children to be virtuosos; we're teaching them to be noble human beings or better human beings. How do you how do you, how do you apply that in a, in a practical scenario? How does that come across in a lesson? I mean, you said you're giving them, you're you're helping them to strive to be better. I guess is is how you. Summed it up, but is there more that you would say about that? Or
1: that idea first caught my attention when I read Nurtured by Love for the First Time, Suzuki's book. I read that I think I think I was like like 29 when I read it. And it's it's awesome. And you know, people can interpret some of these things different ways when you talk about things in teaching like character building. But the 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 base one thing that you can get all Suzuki teachers to agree on is that it's all about listening. It's all about creating more sensitive musicians who aren't just blasting what they're doing and not thinking about it. and And I think that those qualities of of being able to listen to others and being able to be sensitive with w- what you have that you can work with those are qualities of good character.
2: Mm. Absolutely.
0: So there's a lot of examples of that when you're when you're teaching uh, a musician to. To play music more sensitively, or play music better, or you know more in tune, more supportively, more together—all these kinds of things—but you're saying that for every one of those, it's a parallel in our character and how we can live our lives and be better human beings. Is that a fair synopsis?
1: That's the goal.
2: Sure, I think that's fair.
0: Yeah, and I and I guess that is different from what I hear from a lot of like, you know, more. Uh, I don't know if you want to say like uh, old school classical teaching. I mean, what's the difference? Is, is the difference in sort of old school classical teachers? They're all trying to get them in fifth position, you know, right yeah. away <laughs> with a big vibrato playing really fast. Is that, I mean, How is that, you know, what's the risk of, of, of that kind of old school approach? Or what's the difference between that and this is a key approach? Oh.
2: Uh. I think there's a lot of awareness in in the Suzuki approach of uh the idea of success, right? And setting setting kids up so that their their ability always begets more ability, right? So um when you have a situation where you set a kid up for something that they've never had any experience with before and you give them very limited tools as to how to successfully accomplish it i think it starts to uh, introduce this idea of failure fear of failure sometimes um at the very least you know like that's in my opinion that's not the best way to teach And that is for sure an opinion, because I know other people would say otherwise, and that's fine. But I think there are ways where you can just show them, this is everything that you're going to need to do a great job, you know? And like, why? I just, I struggle with why you would want to teach any other way, right? Like, why wouldn't you give your children all the tools that they need to like, just do it well.
1: And it's interesting that you say that because (laughs) I, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of many times where I've talked to colleagues who will talk about their teachers and how mean they were or like how things, like things operated with, with shame. And uh, when I think about, like, when I think about the the teachers that I trained with doing my Suzuki training, Tanya Carey. Andrea Yoon. They use so much positivity in their teaching. They didn't have to get negative and shame kids and and do all this stuff that, by the time those kids are like thirty, have weird like blocks and issues going on from a mean teacher. You know. Um,
0: I see. So I'm hearing that that there's a focus on virtuosity in these in some other methods, which may resort to this kind of using the stick or whatever, and and you're saying that's not that's, that's not a healthy thing, and so you want to try to use positivity and not focus so much on this like moving fast to this vir- path to virtuosity.
2: I just think it's a very limited approach. You know, if the idea really is to teach, teach students ways to approach life, like if their life is always closed in on them and they're just constantly going to be worried about, There's this stuff out there that I don't know how to do. I have an obstacle and I may or may not make it. The world is a dangerous place. I might fail. You know, that's a very limited way to exist in life. And I think instead, if you say, well, here are the things that I know that I can do. Let's see what I can make of this. That's an extremely empowering way to approach your life, you know. And so, I don't know, that's the difference that I see. I uh, I don't want to judge anyone and say, like, oh, this is unhealthy, even though I might argue that. <laughs> but, you know, it, essentially, it's about, you know, like, what's empowering our students and what's limiting them, because we're trying to remove those limits. Right.
1: And I think, and I, you know, it also, I guess, in the end, it sort of goes teacher, teacher by teacher um, because... Like I, I, I brought up the thing about the, the thing about mean teachers just popped in my mind because like the, the, when I think about great Suzuki teachers, I know they operated with positivity. So that ju- that just came to mind. But um, I know some Suzuki teachers who are like super, <laughs> what, Lovely. who are like, who are like super virtuosic with what they did. Like they'll have tiny kids playing crazy stuff. And on right. the flip side, I know I know some some teachers who aren't Suzuki teachers who, you know, with young kids, their their stuff will be really in order too. So I guess I guess in the end, you know, that stuff depends on the teacher, but that um that that attitude of of operating with with love and and respecting a child where they are that's something that's definitely a Suzuki concept. Cool,
0: cool. So, um Well, you know, a lot of this conversation has been and maybe I've I've pushed it that way to sort of, you know, learn more about, you know, Suzuki teachers and why you feel the way you do. And, you know, I'll be honest, part of my motivation is because I think, you know, sometimes there are um, unfair criticisms of Suzuki. What Mm -hmm. are some of the criticisms that you guys hear about the Suzuki method? and maybe some that you think are unfair and maybe some that you think might be fair or or how would you address those? And I, and I appreciate what Rachel, what you already said earlier, which was, you know, it might not be for everybody. That's fine. You know, like we're not going to try to force anybody to to do this if they don't want to. Yeah. That's
2: all based on choice. Right. So, um, I think hands down the one that I don't know if people say this, but the experience that I have as someone who offers Suzuki lessons and gets consumers who are skeptical about what I have to offer, I think it's the idea that I think uh, Christine Goodner, who's a a colleague of ours, uh, we do a lot online with her if you want to check her out. She's uh, on Facebook, Suzuki Triangle Community. There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, but the idea that Suzuki is kind of a countercultural thing these days. It doesn't necessarily fit well within the modern structure of the family, at least here in America. You know, I think the way it was designed when Suzuki was alive was sort of a very traditional setup where, you know, even in his books, he will specify the mother will attend the hmm. lesson with the child, right. right? And we know now, at least around here, like, any possible way you can imagine a family being, that's how families are. So, you know, there's all sorts of structures. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest difference is, um, I think there are a lot more families where both parents are working. And so it's a lot more difficult to commit the kind of time and resources necessary to really successfully achieve a Suzuki experience. Um, so and that's the number one reason why I say it's not a good fit for everybody. You know, first of all, I can't teach everybody. <laughs> and and secondly, it's just not a good fit for everyone whether it's, you know, the lessons aren't costing what you wish they would cost or you don't want to put in the time or you don't want to drive this many times a week to get to the studio. You know, there's all sorts of stuff like that.
1: If you want to drop off your four-year-old so you can go grocery shopping, yeah. Suzuki Method no. might not be the best it's use not. of your money. <laughs> <laughs> it just might. Not, it's a very expensive babysitter at that <laughs> it point. Yeah, it's not that's worth that's your time. It's
2: not what we're about, you know. So that's something that I think is very common, but it's not necessarily verbally articulated to me mm, but I just wanted it. to bring that to you. Uh so.
1: I I'll, I'll say my number one thing. Actually, yeah. I'm I'm very excited to say this cuz I don't think I've ever said this on on record or anything. <laughs> but I I was very skeptical at first. I got into Suzuki teaching because it lined up with a gig that that I that I knew to teach at a to teach at a school and I had to get Suzuki training. And like I was there. I was what, I don't know, maybe I was like 20, 28 or something like that? I'm 33 now. And uh, I just remember, just, just when I went to get that training, at this point, at this point, I knew some good Suzuki teachers, so I was on board. But for years before that, my biggest thing I heard was, Suzuki students don't read music. And that's all I had to hear for me to go, well, that's no good. Like, sight reading is important. For, I, like, I didn't even like look into the other side, you know. But even now, it's like, we'll, we'll be communicating with people who are who are interested in lessons or whatever. And sometimes that's the first thing we'll hear, like, oh, but we want our kids to learn how to read music. Right, and right, it's right. like, you know, I, I've, I've heard that there are some old school uh, teachers out there who maybe at the start didn't do as much note reading, but now, like, note reading classes for kids at the norm, assuming that they're old enough to read. Right. And it's pretty standard stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started reading when I was... I started playing when I was five, and probably didn't start reading till I was seven or eight. But mm. my reading is very strong, and and I've seen that my kids started earlier. I think Dalton started reading when he was even four, maybe. Mm. So so I guess they've they're or maybe five. I can't remember. But uh, how how do you have an age where you start kids reading generally, or is it, does it fluctuate?
2: Well, just uh, curious. My philosophy on it is around the time that they can somewhat master the reading of their first language that's, oh got it that's when it's appropriate to really go into that full-on that being said oh, okay. there are a lot of activities that we do with music theory sort of like pre music theory activities that we do in group class where they're getting a lot of that information and they just don't know what it is yet and that is what I think is most appropriate for them at that stage of development, you know? And the cool thing is when you don't put pressure on it, be like, you have to learn how to read this music. You must understand this theory. They do great, you know? So when you take that out of the picture, um, yeah, so.
1: And one one more criticism um, that I've heard that I, I think I, I think it's worth considering is I've heard some people criticize that it takes a long, it takes... I don't know how long it takes, but there's a lot of music, especially in the beginning, that's based on uh, very similar kinds of scales, a lot of Mozart, a lot of Bach, then you move to Beethoven. And uh, so that's that criticism, that that kids aren't exposed to to a lot of different sounds and from different places or whatever. Um, However, I have noticed that um, a lot of teachers do end up bringing in other things, kind of like we're trying to do. And even, even on our YouTube channel, in our playlists, we have some stuff that's organized by book for what the kids are playing, but we also put our jams and en- encourage kids to listen to different stuff with their instruments, what people are doing now with, with, their, with their players. Um, I know a ton of my students have seen your video of you playing crazy, playing some Gnarles Barkley on violin <laughs> and getting blown away by that, you know? so
0: Well, and that's, that's a really good point, too, I think, about... The difference between uh, a method and a collection of repertoire. And mm-hmm. obviously, Suzuki starts with Twinkle. And I, you know, both my kids spent about their own Twinkle. And I think it was appropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was there, I witnessed the whole thing. I think it mm-hmm. was appropriate for various reasons. Mm-hmm. But um, I agree with what you said, like a lot of Suzuki teachers, they take it on themselves to bring in additional repertoire that's age appropriate or level appropriate and and i and i think that's important too and and but i think that people need to recognize that suzuki teachers have that autonomy um to use what is in the, the books and and also to, to 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 borrow and share from within the community and develop their own approach so that's great i appreciate you making those distinctions This episode of the Creative Strings Podcast is brought to you in part by Yamaha. Uh, Creative Strings depends on Yamaha, I depend on Yamaha, and string players and educators around the world depend on Yamaha for their support in so many ways of music education. I've been working with Yamaha for over 20 years, and I'm really proud to be affiliated with this great company. To learn more, you can go to YamahaStrings.com. I welcome you to get on their email list, and... Uh, and learn more and let them know that, uh, you heard about them from me. There was, I think one question, oh, I know I was going to, one question that I wanted to ask and then there might be something else, but, um, I asked a guy in uh, when I was in Norway last year. I'm going back to Norway here in a couple of weeks, and um, I stayed with a teacher. He was a, a school teacher. He didn't. He wasn't a music teacher. But I asked him. I said, "What you know? What makes a great teacher?" And he said, "Well, there's three things that make a great teacher." He says, "You've got to know your stuff. You've got to come to the student from where they're at," which mm. he said, and he said, "And you've you've got to come from a place of love." He said, if you do those three things, you'll be a good teacher. That's good teaching. Wow. Do you agree with that? Or would you say anything in addition to that? Or or does that resonate for you?
2: I love that. That resonates so clearly. So clearly. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
0: That's cool. Well, what what, could, what should we let people know about? Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? And, and or what can we let people know? about? I already told people about Chili Dog Strings youtube channel and i believe also chili dogstrings.com where not only can people find neil's youtube videos and maybe some of rachel's youtube videos but also rachel's blogs book reviews you guys recently did a review about a great book about the suzuki Mm -hmm. triangle and you've got all these great inspirational videos For any parents or kids who are going through Suzuki training and other teachers who might want to share stuff with their parents and their kids or get inspired for different ways that they can teach. I know you guys are in Frisco, Texas, which I believe is a suburb of Dallas. So, of course, anybody in Texas should be connecting um, with you guys about workshops, and but you're also traveling around the country and doing different things. You've got roots in Michigan. Is there any other things that we could send people to to, to learn about more of your content?
1: Other than that, um, the, the other places... W- well, first, actually, just, just to point out, one of the big reasons that we... One of the big reasons about why we post stuff online anyway, a lot of what we do is, is through the lens... At least I'm speaking for myself here... A lot of it is through the lens of what would have really motivated me when I was a young kid playing cello. So for that reason, even though we don't get to tour around performing as much as we want, that's why we try to put as much stuff on our YouTube channel. And we love seeing when our students get excited about it and see what they can do with their instruments. Same thing with parents. We try to think about what kind of stuff can we share with our studio and then share with others online to help them out with with what they're doing whether it's practicing or or teaching whatever um so yeah and a lot of that the the regular stuff on the journey of what we do is on on facebook on instagram especially facebook a lot of the stuff we share there so um yeah anybody listening to this check out that facebook page too and if any of that stuff is helpful for you whether it's a performance to show students or um anything that we do with teaching that we figured out that we like go for it use it we hope it helps
0: and that's Chili Dog Strings on Facebook as well as dot com. And I know that if they go to Chili dot com, they can get on your mailing list and you guys send a lot of really great content out there. Um, which is awesome. Um, anything else you want to share, Rachel, as far as what you want people to be checking out or, or um, how they can engage with you or
2: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's just I if you're listening to this and you jive with what we're saying and you want to connect we love hearing from you uh we love to connect and create a a bigger sense of community uh sort of something we've been exploring really intently this last year is the idea of collaboration instead of competition and that's you know maybe that's a discussion for another day but uh you know just finding people who are like-minded and are interested in joining the conversation because the more work that we're all contributing to each other it turns out the less work we all have to do (laughs) and i just you know and everyone is so unique and individual and it would be so cool to see what other people are doing and to share ideas so
0: yeah and you guys are interested you're or you're open to doing more stuff at uh, at camps in the summers as far as i know oh, so yeah. people are lo- people are looking for a, a great a violin and cello team that can go in a lot of different directions age groups um skills and concepts i think it's a good it's a good bet um anything else that we should touch on
2: well chris i i was a little curious if you don't mind answering i would love to hear Sort of uh, about your journey from because you do have that Suzuki experience that foundation. What was your journey like from Suzuki into jazz and you know other realm music? Like I, you know, I don't know if I really know that story fully. So I'd love to hear about.
1: That. Are we allowed to ask this? I, <laughs> 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 that was great. That's a great. That, I, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder how you how you made it happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great. That's a great question. Well.
0: Yeah, I had a Suzuki um, background from age five and, you know, all the, the normal stuff, you know. And then uh, when I was in uh, high school, my sophomore year, uh, some of my friends started playing in, like, a garage rock band. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just noticed, just to be a thousand percent honest, like, I just noticed that all the girls were more interested in my friends that played rock music in high school, just being <laughs> completely honest about it. And even though I had... I got some attention from my um, advanced level as a violinist, obviously, but um, I was really envious of the, the, my friends who were the so-called creative types, you know, because it seemed so mystery or mysterious and so personal and original that they were, you know, jamming and coming up with their own songs. And I was just like, well, I don't know how to do that. Plus I was getting into rock music. So I picked up an electric bass and figured it, started figuring out how to play, some electric bass and some electric guitar. I took a couple lessons, and then that was sort of the, the doorway for me, you know. And then just started kind of piecing it together very clumsily, very awkwardly. And, and I was also playing multiple instruments. So I was playing cello in my high school orchestra, and I was, you know, I played a little bit on the piano and started songwriting and stuff. And so so I just was kind of piecing the pieces of the puzzle together together, uh, at first, between very disparate music musical experiences, on one hand, the garage rock band, where what was up was now down, what was down was mm-hmm. now up, and I was sort of learning from my my friends who were mostly self taught, you know, and but they were sort of telling me that like, no, the, you can play a D seven, you don't have to play just a D major triad, and 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 there's not a rule that you know that you know sort of challenging my idea that you know that this was how music was it sort of showed me that there was a lot more out there it's kind of piecing it together and and until i went to college and then played in other kinds of like blues bands and funk bands and rock bands and then i got into a fusion band and then it kind of goes from there but it, it was sort of a you know i was inspired to try to learn from other people and try to piece it together it was very frustrating at first and, and uh and ultimately I, uh, I was able to piece it together and bring those disparate worlds together, and which is why I feel like I can really relate to uh, folks like you guys who come from a similar background as me and have similar questions and similar struggles when you try to reconcile those, those interests and those worlds, you know. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah,
2: for I, sure.
1: I totally feel that because I, I remember being in high school – and picking up guitar and playing chords and just thinking, oh, man, this is like the most next level thing, learning how to play chords. And then th- that feeling of being able to bring it later on the cello when I realized you can play chords on cello. And it's like, wow, cello is even more cool than I thought. And then the same thing, it's like, I remember scratching and and mixing on the turntables and thinking, oh my gosh, these rhythmic complexities, this is amazing. And then later, when I realized you can do cool rhythmic stuff on the cello or violin (laughs) or viola, what? Like, I don't know if if you had moments like that where you do something on another instrument and then when you you try it on your own instrument, you just kind of just open new doors.
0: Well, yeah, it was was all about trying to copy the... um The lead guitar solos on Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix records at first for me and then eventually it came then it was trying to copy Stevie Wonder's voice or you know or whatever and you know eventually trying to check out the left hand of whoever you know McCoy Tyner on the piano and you know Mm -hmm. and eventually yeah but it was that was I remember because that was probably like 1986 or something like or 1988 I remember that Kronos Quartet played on The Tonight Show, and they played Purple Haze. And I remember thinking at that time, well, a mixture of excitement and a mixture of, um, uh, what's the word, uh, being disheartened because I thought that it was my idea. Oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I, I
2: thought...
0: I thought, you know, <laughs> this is my idea. I was going to be the one that unveiled, you know, Jimi Hendrix on Violin to the World and yeah. hear Kronos Quartet beat me to it on The Tonight Show. <laughs> but um, but then I remember clearly thinking, seeing like, oh, this is this is going to go somewhere. You know, this has got to go somewhere. Like, like in the future, like, you know, string instruments are going to play all these kinds of music and, and worlds are going to come together. And so that was... I mean, that was, I don't know, 40 years ago or something like that. So I think it's fair to say that it is all coming together and, and that um, if you just look at how it's progressed in the last 40 years. And I think that um, a lot of us are still in various degrees of resisting that or whatever, but I, I feel pretty confident that it is growing growing. And I think it's folks like you that, that make me feel that confidence. You know, And I, I love seeing that. I love it seeing it come full circle and, and seeing it come in the Suzuki studio mm-hmm. where people like you guys are, are just open to everything that you can do to foster and empower young musicians. So thank you guys so very much. And uh, we will send everybody your way.
2: Oh, thanks Sounds Thanks so much for having us, Chris. This was great.
1: Yeah, we really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for checking out today's episode with Neil and Rachel at Chili Dog Strings. Um, I'd love to hear about your um takeaways. What did you think about this episode? What what did it prompt or provoke for you? And uh I hope that you'll leave a review, share the episode. You can go to Christianhouse.com to the show notes page, the blog, just simply go to Christianhouse.com and click on the blog. And uh, it'll pop right up for you and you can get a lot of um, resources including uh, check out some of the chili dog strings amazing YouTube videos which are so awesome my son Dalton Um, And me and my oldest child, Cammie, we have had so much fun (laughs) um, listening to Drop It Like Gavotte, uh, Neil's uh, remix of the Luli Gavotte, which is a uh, Suzuki repertoire standard. Um, As always, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, I would love for you to leave a review and you can always reach out to me with any questions, requests, comments at chris at christianhouse.com. I'd be remiss not to thank one more time our sponsors, as always, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. And uh, please check them out. Go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash Creative Strings and or go to yamahastrings.com. And I will see you next time.